So uh, yeah, next week we're going to start a new series uh, going through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And I wanted to get into the right frame of mind as we entered into that passage. And so I thought, you know, I'll try this. I'll try reading through Luke and find the first Old Testament reference and see where that takes me. And, you know, it's uh, a bit of a journey of faith, trusting that God had something in that. And also this hunch that the, the first Old Testament reference would have some sort of bearing on the direction of Luke and help us understand who Jesus is better. And it's interesting because the, the actual first Old Testament reference comes from the word that Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, spoke to Zechariah. Um, in, in Luke's gospel, Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And he's in the temple, and he's serving his priestly duties. And an angel of the Lord speaks to him. And it's important because what he says to Zechariah reveals who John is. But more importantly than that, it reveals in new ways, who Jesus is. It's interesting because the angel quotes uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, saying saying it to, to Zechariah that John will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And begin more like, so what's behind this? Because it's really short, and actually it's not even the whole passage. It's just one short reference to it. How does that shape our understanding of who John will become and who Jesus is? So the other thing I was realizing, too, that as I was studying Malachi, I realized also, too, that Malachi, as a prophet, gives us a new lens, like new glasses for us to see clearly. Um, That we can go through life, and I actually um, have a stigma in my eyes that I don't really notice too often, except for when I'm looking and trying to look far away, and sometimes things get a little bit blurry. I I didn't really notice it. Until I went to an eye doctor and they said, oh, well, you've got a stigma. That's why you can't see certain things very well. And what's clicking? Is that? Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, it is. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, it's, I think maybe it's. Is that, is that better? Does that one, there, that's here working now. Okay. There we are, sorted. Okay. Um, that sort of like a pair of glasses that finally help us see clearly. Because slowly vision changes and you don't even realize it until you put on glasses and you're like, oh, this is so much better. I was uh, reading this week about a young girl. She was traveling with her father, and she asked her dad, she asked her dad, Dad, why did the farmer put up that blurry sign out here in the middle of nowhere? This ridic- like, what, that makes no sense. And the dad looked at the daughter, and they took to the thing, and then she read the glass, or she got a pair of glasses, and she drove by that sign again, and it was actually a quote of Scripture saying that all who believe in Jesus will have eternal life. And so she realized, like, oh, I, I needed glasses to see more clearly. And I was thinking about that some of today about this idea of cleared vision. You know, we get so used to the world and the way it is, how do we see it clearly for what it is? We need something to help us see clearly. Um, it made me think of uh, my visit to India. Uh, two years ago, I went with uh, multi, 
Nation Mission Foundation uh, with Chris Weens, our former youth pastor here. We went to India to visit pastors who were planting churches there. And on our way home, we stopped in Delhi, um, which we drove into it. So we had a, one perspective coming in. And, you know, it was interesting. And, you know, I noticed it was like, a, like most cities, kind of dirty and stuff like that. Um, but it was actually on the way out uh, as we were flying and as we were climbing, gaining elevation out of the city that it struck me. Because I'm looking out the window to see the city from the aerial view, and I can see um, like sort of like a split. On the bottom of the window, there's the city and this brown haze. You can kind of see it in this picture. And then above it is blue sky. And I didn't even realize it until I was had this new perspective of how polluted the air was, about how dirty it was. And, you know, you know, I couldn't taste it. I mean, I mean, it smelled a little bit like city, you know, but I wasn't thinking like, oh, man, this is a really um, polluted city. That um, it makes me think of that moment of getting a new perspective and how Malachi can help us see things more clearly. Uh, do you ever get the sense that things don't work their way they're supposed to anymore? That the world is broken? That there is something wrong? The thing is... Um, It also becomes the air that we breathe, that the way our culture around us, we live in it day in, day out, month after month. We live in our world, in our culture, and the things, the values, and the ideas of our culture can kind of weigh on us. And maybe something like the air of Delhi, we don't even begin to realize that we're actually breathing it. We just kind of take it, well, that's the way things are, or this is right, and this is wrong, Um, that we need a new perspective. Do you ever get the sense that, like our society, there are elements of our society, our culture, that are off track? Um, And that maybe sometimes we can get so immersed in it that we get off track ourselves. I was thinking about it, you know, I've never had a conversation with a fish, so I can't confirm this, but I don't think a church realizes, sorry, I don't think a fish realizes that they live in water. It's just where they live. It's just what they do. They don't sense the water around them. It's just the world. Just like us, like we live in an atmosphere. We don't think so much or very often about the air we breathe or the atmosphere we live in. It's just where we live. I think the same thing can happen with culture or the society, where we live in it, we accept what we hear as what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, and we can just adopt that unthinkingly. How do we make sense of that? How do we get clear vision? That's why we need the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, because many of them are foretelling. And by foretelling, I mean they're talking about the future, talking about how the future, telling us what the future will be like to shape the way we live right now. But also, too, the prophets are also forthtelling. And what I mean by that is they speak honestly about the way things are. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, honestly. They remove our delusions. They give us new glasses. They help us get to 10,000 feet where we can see the brown air that we normally live in. So I'm grateful for Malachi and the word that God has spoken through him. If you want to, open up your Bibles to Malachi. It's actually the book. It's about midway, just a little bit left of Matthew, the first or the last Old Testament prophet. It's also in your bulletins if you want to look there as well. I have uh, the whole passage lined out for you. We're just going to walk through it um, and then 
kind of draw out some of what God is saying. So let's dig into this passage, okay? So begin at Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, I'll just start here. It says, so this is the Lord speaking. He says, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Now, it's interesting because Malachi is structured or put together in six questions sort of like this. Where God, six times God says, you have said this about me. And he replies to the people, like kind of quoting them, saying, how have we done that, God? It's sort of like a, a trial or a dispute. And this one here is the sixth one, the last one, the final one. Here, God is dealing with the harsh things that his people have said about him. Then God gets into it. He starts pointing out what they've said. He said, you have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out these, about his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Here God is quoting what people are saying, or at least quoting like, what the sense he gets from their actions, the way that they live. Essentially, they're, they're complaining to God, what's the point? God, we follow you, and in their mind, they really do it well. God, we're following you really well, and yet you don't play along. You don't do what we want you to do. You don't make life easy for us. It's a sense that they're saying kind of like, we did everything right, God. We're doing everything right, and you still don't do what we want. I was thinking about it, it's, it, I couldn't help it, they're not here today to defend themselves, but my boys, <laughs> conversations I have with them that are like this, I say, go out and do this thing for me. And they go out, <clears throat> and they try about 10%. You know, they just sort of like throw themselves at it for a second, and, oh, Dad, it's not easy, it doesn't work. You know, and I'm thinking, well, it does work because I did it yesterday, and if you just do it, but see, the thing is, they think they put in about a 10% effort, and in their minds, they thought that they had put in 100%. And I hear the people of God, or God challenging his people in this, saying, you think you do it really well, but actually you still fall down a lot. You still blow it a lot. And he's challenging their sense of entitlement and even their arrogance. If you read the rest of Malachi, or the first parts of Malachi, the first five questions where God says, um, I have this against you, but you say, how do we do it? Or how are we doing that, God? You actually get a sense that the people of God have drifted far away. They, are, they have idols. They are not um, devoting their, full, their best devotion to God. If they give an offering to God, like a sacrifice, they say they're going to give their best uh, animal, their best lamb, and then they find the one that can barely survive, and that's the one they give the one that has no value. So he's bringing all this up against them. And it's good for us to hear this as well. Are there places in our lives where we think to ourselves, I've done it right, God. I've done everything right and you still don't play ball. God, I'm, I'm doing the, the very best here. I'm, I'm covering all the bases and yet you still don't do what I want you to do. Or worse, do we sense or realize that we have this sense of entitlement? Do we get angry with God because he doesn't seem to be holding up his end of the bargain? We need to ask ourselves these questions. Are we coming to God arrogantly? 
And this is part of the problem of what people are saying. They're saying the arrogant are blessed, that they are succeeding. This is the perception of people, that people who are not doing it right, God, not only am I doing it right and not, you're not doing what I want, the people who do it wrong are getting all the benefit. The people who are cheating and lying and stealing, they're the ones who are really thriving right now. It's funny that they call them blessed. You can see how their vision, how their vision is skewed, how they aren't seeing clearly. But the truth is, like tares among wheat or like weeds among wheat, if you start pulling out the weeds, the wheat gets pulled up too. And so they are left to prosper alongside those who are faithful, maybe even more in some ways. Um, But God is not blind to it. Nobody's pulling a wool over his eyes. So God is showing them here in this question how the harsh things that they've said, the things that, um, the thing is that things are bad. So in their culture around them, people are upset and they're frustrated, but they don't even realize quite how bad it is that they too are included, that they are falling prey to the, to the evil around them, that even they are beginning to talk arrogantly with God. The good news is it's not all bad. Look at this next part. God says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. There is a faithful remnant Even in this hard and sinful place, there is a faithful group of people who still fear and respect the Lord. And by fear, that's the Old Testament way of saying, like, they really respected. The interesting thing is that the Lord listens to them and hears them. So it's not that God has shut off his ears or stopped or has started ignoring them. He still hears and still listens. It says a scroll of remembrance was written. This is something almost like, I think like a modern, almost like a petition, like I sign my name to this. I will follow God or I am following God. This record of who is faithful for no other uh, purpose than to say, I put my name down as a follower of God. This scroll of remembrance. Then the Lord goes on to say, it says they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And that day is a reference to the final day, the day of Christ's return, the day that we look forward to. God promises to clarify and to make the distinction again between those who are wicked and those who are faithful between those who follow God's way and those who don't, those who refuse to. See, right now it can be confusing or it can be disheartening because everybody's mixed together. And you see people who aren't following God's way seem like they're succeeding in ways that are just, it's disheartening. (laughs) And then you see people who are really faithful, who are struggling. And it's hard to reconcile that. The Lord God is saying that there's a day that is coming when all of that will be made right. When those who are faithful will be blessed. And those who continue to reject God, they won't be so prosperous anymore. There won't be any more ambiguity, any more messiness. 
The thing is, it's not all bad news here. There is always a faithful remnant. And on the day of the Lord, that distinction will be made and it will be clear. And those of us who are following God, we will rejoice. And we won't be discouraged anymore. Then God changes gears a bit here. He says, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So now we're getting into what that day actually looks like. The utter destruction of those who continue to arrogantly reject God. I was thinking about it this week as I was reading this part of the passage. It's hard for me to hear this part of Scripture, this part of God's voice. Because it can seem almost vengeful, especially, I think, if I'm reading it wrong. And I was thinking about this as if, if this were the only passage we had about God, about what he's like, it would be troubling. But as I take this passage, or what God is saying here, and I think take passages like Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This image of God as a caring shepherd. Jesus talked about a shepherd, referring to God the Father, who would leave 99 and go look for one sheep. This shepherd who cares deeply. This father who cares deeply for his children. Also made me think about the story of the prodigal son. Many of us have heard that story about the son who rejects his father, says, Dad, I wish you were dead. You're not dying fast enough. Just give me my inheritance now. And he takes it and he goes and he spends it on everything that is bad and destructive. And then he comes crawling back to his dad, thinking that his dad is going to disown him because that's what you did in that day. When your son dishonors you, you disown them. And yet this father is waiting, watching for his son to return. And when he sees him, he begins running. Now, we think like, oh, it sounds like Hallmark, like a movie, right? Wonderful. But actually, in, in Jesus' day, especially fathers of stature, they didn't run. This father throws off all of his honor, all of his status. He dumps all of that so he can go and grab onto this son and welcome him back. And he says, let's throw a party for this son. I don't care about my honor or what's due to me or how he has insulted me. This is my child and I love him. So I hold these images of God up alongside this passage here. And I started, it occurred to me this week, it occurred to me this week, what if God here is not saying this stridently or with anger, but he's actually saying this out of sorrow, stating it as a matter of fact. Not reveling in it, but actually brokenhearted that the day is coming and it will burn like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, despite how much I love them, despite how much I wanted for them, despite the fact that I wanted to reconcile them to myself. What if God is speaking like that here? Can't help but wonder if maybe we put too much human emphasis on this. Our desire to see those who are wrong or those who do things wrong to get theirs. 
I wonder if maybe actually God is brokenhearted as he says these words. And then he says this. He says, but, but for you, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. This idea that the faithful, those who continue to follow God even when it's hard, they will be vindicated. No longer will they be punished or no longer will they suffer despite for having done for having been faithful. They'll actually be vindicated. The day of Lord, it talks about here will be a day of healing. Maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually, maybe all those together, a day of healing. It talks about we'll play like a calf released from its stall. You can just imagine that picture. I mean, those of you who have raised uh, cattle and a calf, let them out of their pen, and they're like little kids at recess, and they go running out and jumping around. And it's true here. It does say you will trample down the wicked, but what if that's not like stomping on people, but more out of delight for what God has done in their lives, that they have been set free, that they are, it's a matter of fact, walking on the remains of people who refuse to follow God. On the day of the Lord, it will be a day of reckoning. And what I mean by often we hear day of reckoning and we think, oh, day when everybody's going to get it. I hear day of reckoning and I hear it more in like the literal sense of wrecking, of making things right, of squaring up things. That those who have rejected God's attempt to save them, they won't survive it. It's just a matter of fact. And not something that we say with delight or vengeance, but something we say with sorrow and despair. But the closer we are to Jesus, the more we look at that day and we pray, Lord God, please be at work in my friends or my family who refuse to follow you yet. The closer we are to Jesus, the more we look at this day uh, for the sake of others, with a bit of sorrow, but certainly never with spite or vengeance. But for those who did faithfully follow Jesus, for those who followed God and lived his way, this day is not a day of fear or of pain. It is a day of celebration. It is a day of joy like a calf who's been cooped up in his pen all day and then is finally set free. The Lord then concludes with this last bit. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. He's basically saying, follow God, continue to follow, continue to be faithful. And today we follow Jesus, the fulfiller of Moses' law, the one who filled it full. And so we keep following him. And then there's this last bit here. And he says, See, I will send you a prophet, Elijah, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, 
or else I will come and make the land a curse. Thinking about this some about the idea of Elijah coming. And there were some who recognized that when John the Baptist come, came, he was a like Elijah, fulfilling this prophecy, coming, proclaiming the day of the Lord, saying that the Lord is coming, that Jesus was coming. But it says this, it says, He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. And I think there's two aspects to this. The first one is the idea of God, of this, um, this prophet like Elijah coming and acting as a catalyst. That when God comes, when Jesus comes, or when he came the first time, that he began this process of turning fathers to sons and sons to fathers, or excuse me, children to fathers. This idea of reconciliation. It's like this beginning of shalom. And for those of you who have heard that, the idea of shalom, it's the Hebrew word for peace. In English, we mean peace is more like they stopped, shot, they stopped uh, shooting at each other. But in Hebrew, it means they stopped shooting at each other. But then they also started growing things together and sharing things. And everybody had more than enough. That's the idea of shalom. Not just the end of violence, but the beginning of prosperity for everyone. That we see this beginning of shalom here. That broken relationships between parents and children, they're fixed and they're reconciled. This beginning of it. But I also realized too that there's this second aspect too. And I started thinking about Jesus and what he came to do. That he came to return the father, turn his heart to his children in one sense, and also to turn the heart's of the children of God, of all of us, to our Father in heaven. To reconcile us, to bring us back together. Because before, our sins separated us from God. The things that we've done wrong, the things that we regret or should regret, the things that we're ashamed of, the things we wish we could go back and undo or fix, those things separated us from God. Not because God hated us, but because God is righteous. Because he's holy. And he can't just say, well, you know what, I'm just going to overlook it. That's not really just. And we think, well, in my case, yeah, you should just do that. But in case of the murderer or the, 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 the thief or the swindler, like those people should get it, but not me. The thing is, God doesn't work that way. He's holy. And we needed someone to step in for us, to make a way back to God for us. And that's what Jesus has done to reconcile fathers to their children and children to their fathers. There's a few things that come out of this chapter of Malachi. Maybe some for this morning, it might be conviction about uh, the ways that we take God for granted. Or maybe it's this reality that good and evil still matter. Even though in our world around us right now, it doesn't really look like it. Good and evil, faithfulness and wickedness, they still matter and there's still a distinction. But I think I hear for us this morning God calling us to clear our vision. To see things rightly. Like my trip to Delhi. When we, we, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves walking among the city streets, just breathing the air, thinking it's normal, or not paying attention to it. Malachi helps us get to about 10,000 feet where we can see it for what it is. The culture around us. The trouble that it's in. The ways it encourages us to ignore or reject God. Ways to, or encourages us to live unfaithfully to him or to make our own way. 
we see now that Malachi helps us see that just because everybody else around us is doing it and says it's right doesn't mean that it is. The world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. This morning we're reminded that things are bad, but there is more that meets the eye. There's more going on here than just the culture around us. Then when we begin looking at that last day when Christ returns, that it shapes the way that we live right now. That we don't just look at that day and say, oh, I can't wait till that day happens, and so I'm just going to keep my head down and, and hope it, I make it. <laughs> That's never what Jesus intended. When he kept talking about his return, when the early church looked forward to his return, and the church has constantly been looking for it in their lifetime, the point was always that we would live more faithfully, that we'd see the culture around us for what it is, that we wouldn't get sucked in, that we would have clear vision and faithfully follow Jesus even when it's hard. All of this points to Jesus, realizing who he is and what he's, came to, what he's come to do. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start into the Gospel of Luke, looking forward to the time as we get near to Christmas, as we remember the fact that Jesus has come. That God didn't just abandon us and say, I hope you guys figure it out, that he actually came for us. And the amazing news, the good news, that he is coming again to make things right, to bring a reckoning, to make things right. This is the good news, and this is what Malachi helps us see. Clears our vision of the future so that we can live faithfully now. Amen. As we commence, I invite you to stand and we'll sing.